Let's pray. Lord, we thank you that you are willing to hear our prayers. We are amazed that you would hear our petitions and our praises as they fall so far short of what it means to pray in the name of Jesus. But you do hear us and you are patient as we grow in praying that things on earth would be as they are in heaven, that your Lordship would be more and more apparent until it fills the whole world. You hear us and you are patient as we learn to pray that we would have endurance in the difficulties of life rather than praying that our lives would be filled with ease. You hear us and you are patient as we learn to pray with thankfulness for the riches we have in Christ Jesus. So we confess together, Lord, that we need the healing of the great physician. Your Holy Spirit has started making us new, but our old hearts are still working to uproot us from your love and your people. Our old hearts are still working to rebel against your good ways. Forgive us, Father, as we know that your ways are perfect and we want to follow them completely. We are dissatisfied and sick over our sin as it is an offense against you. Have mercy on us and let the purifying work of Jesus be effectual in our lives. Lord, we pray for the many Christians around the world who have been displaced by persecution. Specifically today, we pray for the Christians in rural Oaxaca, Mexico, who have been forced from their homes as a result of their faith in you. We pray that these families will remain firm in their faith as they endure hostility from their community members. We pray that they would find refuge in you. And we pray that their steadfast faith would be used to open the eyes of their oppressors and that they would come to you. Lord, we pray for the Christians in Somalia and Kenya that are being attacked and killed for their faith in you. We ask that they would be able to find joy and peace in the many times in your word that you and your messengers tell us to not be afraid. Instead, they know what it means to fear you rather than man. We pray that their faith would remain strong and that you would comfort those who have lost loved ones in the attacks. We thank, we thank you, God, that we can hear from you through your word this morning. Let it be a refreshing spring of water to those of us who feel like we are in a parched desert. Give all of us a greater appetite for your words that are bread to our souls. Give us spiritual eyes to see through the illusions this world puts up to blind us to reality. Open our ears so that your word would reach our hearts. We pray all of this in alignment with your will and in, and in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen. Amen. Thanks, Ryan. You guys can have a seat. <clears throat> and open up to Revelation chapter 9. crazy to think that last year, at this time, we were waking up to a horrible ice storm. Does anybody remember that? And yesterday and today, what a paradise, amen? God is good to us in the Pacific North Northwest. I almost said North Mess. I guess that could be a <laughs> Freudian slip too. For the most part, I love living in the Northwest because it is usually temperate in most things. I didn't realize how good we had it here with things like weathery and 
weather and greenery, and even a mild, it's gonna be a long morning, guys, sorry. <laughs> and even a mild insect population that we had here until I started traveling outside the country. All you have to do uh, to know how good we have it is to go to another part of the world. Take just the topic of bugs, for example. In West Africa, for example, at certain times of the day, especially at night, I have experienced the odd sensation of watching the mosquito netting around my bed move as it is covered with thousands of bugs. If you close your eyes, it's kind of cool. The dull drone of the bugs can even help you fall asleep like a white noise machine. In Haiti, it wasn't the walls that moved, but it was the floor that moved when I ventured out of our mosquito-netted bed to go use the restroom. I turned on the lights only to watch the floor, which I thought was speckled and spotted, disappear into a nice white set of tiles when all of the cockroaches scattered into the darkness. You should have seen Kelly's face with that one. <laughs> now, I have heard the worst insects to experience are locusts, but I have not experienced them myself. And many of us, I think, in this room have not experienced a locust swarm before. So let me help you with a short clip from a CNN news story about the plague of locusts that has been disastrously affecting the Horn of East Africa for the last year. Now, those are not birds. Those are locusts. Did any of you shiver? Did any of you feel like you had locust wings in your hair? Did you empathize with the individual running and gagging ugh, as he found it impossible to escape the torment of the locusts? When we encounter this image or even the idea of bugs, say even spiders, Many of us have a visceral, physical experience in that moment. For those who have experienced it, your mind doesn't simply remember the image, but your body recalls the feelings, the dread, the unpleasantness of it all. How many of you are old enough to remember watching the movie Arachnophobia? You just say that word, and it makes me squirm. You remember it in your body. This kind of sensory experience is the very thing that John the Revelator is hoping to convey in the book of Revelation. To treat it as a book that simply imparts future chronological events is to misunderstand the point of apocalyptic visions. It is meant to bring all of your senses and even your emotions to bear. And this is why John often employs the weird paradoxical statement that he looks, but then he hears something. Or he goes to hear, but then he sees as we look at the lamb seated on the throne, for example, in chapters 5 and 6, and heard the song of the myriad of thousands in worship, our whole self enters into that moment as if we are experiencing the scene ourselves. Many of you have even come to me and said, man, I got goosebumps from reading through that today. But it's not only the joyful and celebratory visions that are meant to evoke this kind of sensory experience. The scenes of darkness and destruction, of torment and judgment, are meant to do the same in a different way. Our reading last week was meant to bring a sense of awe as the hearer is overwhelmed by the cataclysmic images of hail and fire, blood, comets, and death. One of the difficulties of appropriately preaching apocalyptic literature 
is that often we are separated by not only time and culture from the original author, but even in the details of daily life and overall context. Even there, we're separated by a great distance. For example, our text today deals with this idea of the overwhelming experience of a locust swarm. And for most of us in this room, as I said, we have not experienced what a locust swarm in the Middle East or Africa is like. Even more distancing is that many of us in this room are not agrarian. Some of us are, some of us are farmers. But our livelihood, for most of us, our survival does not depend upon our local crops or whether or not they've been destroyed by locusts. For us, that might be an annoyance, but it does not spell out the likelihood of death for us. We'll just import something from far away. And so as we look at the fifth plague this morning, the trumpet that brings forth a plague of locusts, we need to allow ourselves to holistically feel and sense what is happening here. For in doing so, our application will be forever cemented in our minds. And so this morning, we will be looking at a destructive plague of spiritual darkness. A destructive plague of spiritual darkness. And be sure to catch the play on words here. Many of you know that a group of birds is called a flock or a group of puppies is called a litter. Many of you might even know that a group of crows is called a murder. But you may not know that a group of locusts is indeed called a plague. And so today we will look at a destructive plague of spiritual darkness. As we look at the destructive locust symbolizing spiritual darkness and torment, we will be seeing this plague uh, overcome us, if you will. And our main point this morning will describe that plague. We'll look at its origin first, and then its activity, and then its appearance. And from it, we will gain some important application. So let's begin by reading our text in Revelation 9, 1 through 12. Revelation 9, 1 through 12. And the fifth angel blew his trumpet, and I saw a star fallen from heaven to earth. And he was given the key to the shaft of the bottomless pit. He opened the shaft of the bottomless pit, and from the shaft arose smoke, like the smoke of a great furnace. And the sun and the air were darkened with the smoke from the shaft. Then from the smoke came locusts on the earth. And they were given power like the power of scorpions of the earth. They were told not to harm the grass of the earth or any green plant or any tree, but only those people who do not have the seal of God on their foreheads. They were allowed to torment them for five months, but not to kill them. And their torment was like the torment of a scorpion when it stings someone. And in those days, people will seek death and will not find it. They will long to die, but death will flee from them. In appearance, the locusts were like horses prepared for battle. On their foreheads were what looked like crowns of gold. Their faces were like human faces, their hair like women's hair, and their teeth like lion's teeth. They had breastplates like breastplates of iron, and the noise of their wings was like the noise of many chariots with horses rushing into battle. They have tails and stings like scorpions, and their power to hurt people for five months is in their tails. They have as king over them the angel of the bottomless pit. His name in Hebrew is Abaddon, and in Greek he is called Apollyon. The first woe has passed. Behold, two woes are still to come. As we look at this destructive plague of spiritual darkness. And as we see this fifth angel blow the trumpet, we begin with the sight of the origin of the plague. The origin of the plague 
is the abyss of hell. We see this in verses 1 and 2. The trumpet invites an angelic being to come forward. John uses the image of a star fallen from heaven, playing on the theme of the heavenly origin and divine authority behind the plagues that we looked at last week in Trumpets 1 through 4. But this time, the star is characterized as being that it has fallen from heaven, and it's given a key, an authority, to open a shaft and a pit that has been previously closed and locked down. Now, there is debate about who this star is, but what we do know for sure is that the imagery of a fallen star very much speaks to an angelic being that is part of the cosmic insurrection against God. And this being is told to go and open this pit. But notice with me that even then, this fallen being is absolutely still under the authority and the control of the ultimate divine sovereignty of the one who owns the keys. Do you remember who that is? Do you remember who it is that owns the keys? Look back at Revelation 1, 17 through 18 with me in your Bible. And what you're going to see is Jesus Christ. It says there in 1, 17 through 18, When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. But he laid his right hand on me, saying, Fear not, I am the first and the last and the living one. I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore and I have the keys of death and Hades. The one who holds the keys is the offspring of King David, the king of the cosmos, the one who died and resurrected, Jesus, the anointed one. He is the one with the ultimate authority, and for a moment, he hands that key to this fallen star. From Revelation 1, we learn that Jesus held the keys to death and Hades. And this word Hades is the Greek word for the abode of the dead. In Hebrew, the name is Sheol. Can you say Hades? Hades. And Sheol. Sheol. But these words, death, Hades, and Sheol, are broken down in the ancient Near East mind even further. And it's important for us to understand this when we're reading scripture and interpreting it correctly based on the context of the original author. So let's take a moment with me and, and we're going to break down this idea of hell. When we talk about the idea of what we call hell in the Western world, we have to remember that in the ancient Near East, that was a special part of what was called Hades or Sheol. In their minds, in the ancient Near East, in the time of even John, the location of that place was at the center of the earth. Many of you have seen this before in this church, but remember, this is what the ancient Near Easterners thought the world was like. This is their view of cosm the cosmos. But don't go discounting the Bible as an inspired truth just because they expressed ideas in the naivete of their understanding of the created world. Just because we see a bit more that we do understand through technology does not mean we can be arrogant about the infinite knowledge of God and his creation that we do not understand. Christ rose from the grave, and he gave credence to the truth that there is indeed a place of eternal torment for the unrighteous dead. Don't discount that just because we have telescopes that can see far out in space. <laughs> Jesus has the keys to death and Hades, and in our text this morning, this fallen angelic being is given the authority, the key, to open a certain portion of what is contained there. And something emerges from this place that we might term as hell. That one English word actually has a lot behind it. When you search for the word hell in the New Testament, you will find 14 uses in 14 verses. 
12 times, it is a derivative of the word Gehenna. Gehenna. You can write these down if you want. You don't have to. Gehenna. One time it is the word Hades. And one time in the Greek, it is referring to a place called Tartarus. Tartarus. Now let me explain a bit. Gehenna is the most used, and it comes from an idea of the Valley of Hinnom. This was a valley right outside the city walls of Jerusalem where idolatrous Israel sacrificed their children on the white-hot altar of the pagan Molech. Because of this, it became the place in Jesus' day where the Israelites would dump their garbage and the bodies of those that they deemed impure or unclean, the Valley of Hinnom. And to deal with that impurity, they would keep the fires burning there night and day. It was the refuse dump of their day. And this idea is what Jesus and James, for example, used to describe the future eternal torment and punishment of the unrighteous dead in hell, Gehenna. In one of the other uses that is translated in English as hell, Jesus uses the word Hades, or the abode of the dead, or Sheol in the Hebrew. And this is simply a place of the unrighteous dead. But then there is one other place, one other use in the New Testament of the word that's rendered in English as hell, and it is found in 2 Peter 2.4. 2 Peter 2.4. And this phrase here that is uh, cast them into hell is the word that refers to a place called Tartarus. Let's read it in 2 Peter 2.4. For if God did not spare the angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell and committed them to chains of gloomy darkness to be kept until the judgment, and then it continues on. Well, this phrase, cast them into hell, is the Greek verb that refers to the place Tartarus. And it comes from a Greek idea. Tartarus was the lowest possible pit in the midst of Sheol or Hades, the abode of the dead. And it was reserved for the worst of the worst. It was a place of incarceration for the most horrific demonic entities. And you can see it here in this zoomed-in view of that earlier ancient Near East worldview. The belief was that it was a bottomless pit or abyss, and it's the place that the demons were referring to in the story where Jesus sends the demons into the uh, group of pigs, where they, the demons cry out and beg him not to command them to depart into the abyss. This idea of the abyss or the bottomless pit is the place in which they would be incarcerated. If you look at this idea here, you see it there at the bottom of Sheol, and notice the shafts that lead up to the living world. This is the idea that John is, has in his head as he writes uh, Revelation 9. Now, anytime you see this idea of a pit or bottomless pit in Revelation, it has behind it another Greek word that's called the abuso or the abyss, and it refers to the place of demonic incarceration. You see, the idea was that God created hell, he created the abyss, the Tartarus, as a place of incarceration and torment for the angelic beings that rebelled against his cosmic reign. And when mankind was created and decided to rebel against God as well, under the authority of Satan himself, this became the eternal place of torment for the unrighteous humans as well. It was not created for them, but it's the only other place to go outside of the abode of God. You might say, well, Hans, why do we then have this one word of hell? Well, the word hell is a Germanic word for the concealed place. 
And it was the word that was used in the King James. And this is why most Westerners think of hell as the bad place. But behind it, you can see that there's much more that goes into it. And so now you can see the picture in your mind's eye of what John is referring to when he says that a demonic being fell from heaven, was handed authority from Christ, and opened up the shaft of the abyss or the bottomless pit. And from that abyss rose up smoke of a great furnace. The image now that comes from Gehenna and the fires of the Valley of Hinnom and what will be discussed later in Revelation as the lake of fire comes to bear on our senses. You can even almost see the fires and we feel the smoke start to encase our lungs and our eyes. And the smoke is so black and so powerful because of the masses who fuel the fires that it actually blacks out the sun and the very air. Friends, do you remember how heavy the air was during the fires two years ago? How hard it was to breathe? How dark it was in the middle of the day? That is the imagery that John is calling to mind here. But wait, you might be saying, shouldn't we discard this archaic notion of hell since it was based on these unscientific and mythological ideas from Greece and Israel? Aren't we more evolved than that? Not at all. The authors of the New Testament were using language and cultural understanding of the day to capture an idea that is truth. How do we know it is true? How do we know that hell exists? Because Jesus Christ confirmed it by his teaching, death, and resurrection. And it is core to the creeds of Christianity that Jesus even descended there to preach to the demons that they were conquered before he rose again and preached to those who saw him in his resurrected state. Now, if you can come up with a better party trick than that, you can go ahead and decide that hell is not real. But until you do, we should probably listen to our Lord and Savior. Amen? So we need to pay attention to the message that is being given to us and not discard it because the only language we have to describe it comes out of ancient worldviews and cosmology that has been adjusted. The word of God that has the spiritual seal of the death and resurrection of Christ upon it declares clearly that there is a place of eternal torment for those who will not surrender their lives to the authority of Christ. It is real. Friends, Christ died so that you could be with him in eternal redemption and restoration. Don't willingly, knowingly, rebel against him. In so doing, you are choosing eternal torment in this place that John describes as emitting smoke as from a great furnace of fire. If this imagery is even a slight bit like the physical reality of what the place of eternal torment is like, I don't know about you, but I want nothing to do with it. We live in a society that has thrown away this idea to its detriment, and lawlessness has increased because of it. We are meant to fear hell, and we need to do so. This is the imagery that John gives us. Well, now that we understand the idea of what is being considered, let's see what lets loose from this pit, as next we see the activity of the plague the spiritual hardening of unrepentant mankind. The activity of the plague, the spiritual hardening of unrepentant mankind. Let's read it again there in verse 3. It says, Then from the smoke came locusts on the earth, and they were given power like the power of scorpions of the earth. 
They were told not to harm the grass or the earth or any green plant or any tree, but only those people who do not have the seal of God on their foreheads. They were allowed to torment them for five months, but not to kill them. And their torment was like the torment of a scorpion when it stings someone. And in those days, people will seek death and will not find it. They will long to die, but death will flee from them. John uses two images that both have connotations of destruction and death and pain, locusts and scorpions. But notice that he is intentionally mixing his metaphors here. A second ago, it was smoke that was emerging from the furnace of the abode of the wicked dead. And it's actually flying towards God, or excuse me, towards John. He's starting to see the smoke, but it's, it's moving towards him. And as he looks more closely, he seems to be able to distinguish that the smoke is actually a swarm of locusts, so thick that it looks like smoke. But these locusts are odd. They are told by the lamb who has authority over them not to harm the grass of the earth or any vegetation. Now, this is like asking a lion to be a vegan. It is the opposite of what they're supposed to do. And this absurd notion is meant to draw us into it and look a bit closer. And if you remember last week, we saw in the very first trumpet that the plague was picturing natural disaster that happens as a present judgment of God on a world full of original sin. And specifically, the judgment sent from heaven pictured famine and pestilence as the vegetation and grass used to feed the livestock was destroyed. But in our text today, there is a purposeful difference. John seems to be saying something different to try and get us to figure out what's going on. Something that is not physical in nature at all is happening. It is as if there is a big difference between the first four trumpets playing out in the physical judgment of natural disaster and the next three trumpets. And it says that the locusts are given uh, the power to harm, notice, those people who do not have the seal of God on their foreheads. Those who are allegiant to the kingdom of darkness that is led by the adversary of God. Now the harm is then spelled out even further. These locusts are allowed to torment them for five months, but not kill them. And their torment is like a scorpion sting. It will cause such torment that people will long to die and have their pain quenched, but they will not actually embrace death as it will flee from them. It's a rotten and hopeless picture, is it not? Unlike the first four trumpets that were measured by God and affected everyone, this trumpet plague is still measured. That's the meaning of the five months. But it only affects non-believers. In fact, all of those non-believers that are not sealed by the Holy Spirit. They alone will feel this torment and torture for a set time. Now, the imagery of the vision given to John calls to mind Exodus and its plagues, specifically Exodus 10. As John writes, he is combining pieces of the locust plague in the first portion of Exodus 10 and the plague of darkness from the last half to produce a picture. Would you go ahead and turn with me there to Exodus chapter 10? We'll do a little bit of reading. Remember that the way that the Jews at least read scripture is they would reference scripture not just to call to mind just that scripture as we do in the West, but all of the surrounding information. And I believe this is what John is doing here as well. Exodus 10, starting in verse 14. It says, The locusts came up over all the land of Egypt and settled on the whole country of Egypt. Such a dense swarm of locusts 
as had never been before, nor ever will be again. This is apocalyptic language. It's not necessarily saying quantifiably it is the biggest ever, but it is saying it is apocalyptic. They cover the face of the whole land so that the land was darkened. And they ate all the plants in the land and all the fruits of the trees that the hail had left. Not a green thing remained, neither tree nor plant of the field through all the land of Egypt. Then Pharaoh hastily called Moses and Aaron and said, I have sinned against the Lord your God and against you. Now, therefore, this is crazy that Pharaoh says this, forgive my sin, please, only this once and plead with the Lord your God, only to remove this death from me. So he went out from Pharaoh and pleaded with the Lord. Moses did what he asked, right? And the Lord turned the wind into a very strong west wind, which lifted the locust and drove them into the Red Sea. Not a single locust was left in all the country of Egypt. But the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart, and he did not let the people of Israel go. Then the Lord said to Moses, stretch out your hand toward heaven, that there may be darkness over the land of Egypt, a darkness to be felt. So Moses stretched out his hand toward heaven, and there was pitch darkness in all the land of Egypt three days. They did not see one another, nor did anyone rise from his place for three days. But all the people of Israel had light where they lived. In other words, it's not affecting them. Then Pharaoh called Moses and said, Go serve the Lord. Your little ones also may go with you. Only let your flocks and your herds remain behind. But Moses said, You must also let us have sacrifices and burnt offerings that we may sacrifice to the Lord our God. Our livestock also must go with us, not a hoof shall be left behind, for we must take of them to serve the Lord our God, and we do not know with what we must serve the Lord until we arrive there. But the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart, and he would not let him go. Then Pharaoh said to him, Get away from me, take care never to see my face again, for on the day you see my face you shall die. Moses said, As you say, I will not see your face again. And you know how it goes from there. The final plague comes of the uh, death of the firstborn and the Passover. And this hardness of heart is what keeps Pharaoh from doing the very simple thing of letting the Israelites go and having all of the plagues stop. There's a hardness to him where he sees that his hardness is inflicting more pain and yet he refuses to repent because his heart is so hardened. Now notice, if we go back to Revelation 9, you can go back there with me, Notice that in Revelation 9, we have this singular plague that brings torment of both kinds just mentioned. Like these two Exodus plagues, the plagues before us are held back from, the plague before us is held back from hurting God's people. God's people are able to have light and comfort in the midst of this plague, but those who are not God's people will be tormented horribly. The boundaries John is making here are clearly spiritual in nature. Those who belong to the kingdom of the Lamb receive protection from this plague. Those who belong to the kingdom of darkness receive torment and pain. This kingdom differentiation is similar to the Exodus story. Those allegiant to Pharaoh and the Egyptian idols versus those allegiant to Yahweh. And at the center of that theme in Exodus is the idea of Pharaoh's heart hardening seeming to soften for a moment, but then hardening again in rebellious anger towards God. It makes us call to question, you know, Pharaoh, why wouldn't you just soften your heart? Why wouldn't you just give in? And we have the same idea in Revelation as well. Why would people not simply repent and turn to the Lamb in submission? Why would they rather cry out, as we saw earlier, for the rocks to fall on them and hide them from the Lamb? Well, friends, Jesus told us quite clearly what the underlying issue is in these cases. 
Many of you are familiar with John 3.16, but let's read it in context. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world. That's what the world thinks that he did. But in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only son of God. And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world and people loved the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light lest his works should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. You see, unlike the lie that the world sells, mankind is not innately good. We do not innately want to submit to our creator and walk in his will. Every one of us, myself included, wants to willfully harden our hearts toward God and his law. We hate the light, for it points out how depraved and hateful we are. In fact, innately, I'm probably far more like that cockroach that scatters when the light turns on. But the good news of the gospel is that in spite of that hatred and rebellion towards God, God was rich in mercy and grace. And he reached into our depraved hearts and he saved some of us. He gave us a grace that was irresistible and that it opened our eyes to the truth and we could not unsee that truth. But then at the same time, God also gave over the rest of mankind to their hardened hearts in justice, blinded by the lies of the enemy of God. And this hardening of hearts away from God is the torment that is being described here in Revelation 9, a hardening towards God. And even more amazing is the fact that the enemy of God he is not merciful and gracious, but bitter and evil. And yet people still choose him, even though he harms his own. This is the amazing part about this plague of locusts that come from the pit. They come from the darkness and yet attack those who are allegiant to that very darkness. Why would you want to be in that kingdom? Listen to what Paul says in 2 Corinthians 4. Even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. Friends, this should not produce hatred in us towards the enemy of Christ. It should produce compassion and empathy. They're blinded. The darkness and torment that comes from existing in allegiance to the darkness is that it overcomes you with all the fruit of the flesh. Hatred and bitterness, isolation and anger, a lack of peace and hopelessness and defeat. And those in this state yearn for death. But at the same time, all that is built into them in terms of their innate knowledge of a creator God and their understanding that we have an eternal spirit, all of this keeps them in terror at the thought of death. And so they're stuck in torment. You can see this all around us in a world filled with people that desire death so badly that they numb themselves with method, methods of escape, with substance and sex addiction, entertainment addiction, 
or anything else that will be an attempt to put salve on their tormented hearts that are distant from their creator. Salve on their hearts that are rebellious towards the one that made them. And yet, as we've seen over the last two years, what is the greatest fear of these same people? Death. But John makes the point that those in Christ are not affected by this same torment. Those sealed by the mark of the Lamb are one with the higher authority that allowed the shaft and the pit to be opened in the first place. And some might argue that opening this torment and allowing it to harm the unrepentant is a horrible thing. But friends, this action is simply God giving mankind over to what we desire in the first place. And remember that mankind dismissed God as God and honored the creature rather than the creator. And so we are told that God gave us over to the darkness. And he would have been just in giving all mankind, every last one of us, over to the darkness. He would have been just. And yet he didn't. He saved. He brought salvation by his own death. John's vision is a fulfillment of this imagery. And at the same time, God's authority is so powerful that his very gospel makes it possible for those that are in Christ to overcome the darkness. In a sense, it chains up the kingdom of darkness and allows the gospel to open the lights, turn on the lights and open the eyes of the people of God. Sure, we as Christians may have our rough spots, our anxiety or depression at times, but overall, we have the hope of God's good news given by Jesus Christ, empowered and carried out by the Holy Spirit and seen in the love of the body of the saints before us. We know that the story will end in Christ's kingdom in full victory, heaven and earth restored and justice complete with all those in rebellion against Christ thrown into the lake of fire for all eternity. We, like Christ, don't rejoice in that fact, but we do rejoice in the fact that our God is just and also merciful. It is this contrasting truth that sits behind Christ's very words that we heard earlier in our reading from Luke. He said to them, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. And behold, I have given you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy. Nothing shall hurt you, but nevertheless, do not rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. We do not rejoice in the power and peace that Christ has given us because we now think that we have arrived or that we are the spiritual authority and that we are better somehow than those who are in darkness. We rejoice because the goodness, grace, and mercy of God saved us in spite of our blindness, in spite of our sin, contrary to our sin. Jesus' love for us was contra-conditional towards us. He died in our place and carried the burden of sin that you and I have accumulated. None of us in this room deserves that grace, and yet he gave it freely. He bore the judgment of God's wrath on our behalf, and then he rose three days later, victoriously showing us that his death was effective to conquer death, hell, and the kingdom of darkness. You see, friends, we have been torn from the clutches of the father of lies, who desires to blind our hearts and hold us in rigid rebellion with a hardened heart towards God and his people. And because of this, the gospel has given us protection from the darkness of Satan's lies. If you are sitting here today or maybe listening to this online 
and you do not know Christ. You've not been baptized as a sign and seal of the salvation he has completed in your life. Well, then it is time for you to turn to him and give your life to him. Don't wait any longer to turn to the light. For our text this morning tells us that Satan and his kingdom are in the business of blinding and afflicting those who are in rebellion with them. They will take the hardness of your heart and they will capitalize on it. Your heart will only grow more calloused and hard towards Christ with each hearing of the gospel that is followed by a refusal to bow the knee to Christ. And if you are a Christian, then the word is clear, as we have seen, that this hardness and darkness does not affect those who are truly in Christ. But then the question comes, how do I know I'm truly in Christ? Unlike Pharaoh, who feigned repentance but then turns right back to a hard heart towards God and his people, those who are truly in Christ will bow before the truth of God's word and the wisdom of his people when it is brought to them. They will not harden their hearts in pride and pull away from those who wish to love them and encourage them in the gospel. They will soften instead when words of correction are brought. Friends, if you have found yourself hardening your heart, it is time to repent and turn toward Christ and his people. This very week, I personally was so thankful for brothers who brought a word of conviction to me. And I had a choice in that moment to do everything my heart wanted to, which is to harden and fight and defend, or to soften and to listen, even if it takes time. Let us be a church that calls people to the light, but also encourages one another in this amazing truth that death and hell and the chaos around us have no power over us. We are safe in Christ from even death itself and whatever spiritual torment might wish to overcome us. And we can remind one another when we feel like our hearts are hardening that we have the power of the gospel and the power of repentance so that at the first sign of a heart hardened towards God or his people, we can lovingly go to one another and call each other to repentance. What a grace that is, amen? But for the unrepentant masses, God will continue to give them over to their hardened hearts. And this is why this plague is pictured overtaking them in judgment. We see this in the last section in verses 7 through 12, the appearance of the plague is a horde that brings destruction. A horde that brings destruction. Let's take a look there in verse 7. In appearance, the locusts were like horses prepared for battle. On their heads were what looked like crowns of gold. Their faces were like human faces. Their hair like women's hair and their teeth like lion's teeth. They had breastplates like breastplates of iron, and the noise of their wings was like the noise of many chariots with horses rushing into battle. They have tails and stings like scorpions, and their power to hurt people for five months is in their tails. They have as king over them the angel of the bottomless pit, and his name in Hebrew is Abaddon, and in Greek his name is Apollyon. The first woe is past. Behold, two woes are still coming. John is using the language of simile to describe these locust warriors and the entirety of the horde that is overcoming the earth. The word like, you might notice, is used eight times in this section. So we know that this is not a literal image that we are to take literally. It's simile. 
But John is not using just any old imagery. He is using imagery based off of the covenant relationship that arose from the Exodus out of Egypt. Remember that the Bible as a whole is a collection of covenant documents between God and his people. That's this book that we hold in our hands. It's a collection of covenant documents. And in Deuteronomy specifically, God reviewed the covenant of the Exodus and noted the blessings and cursings. In Deuteronomy 28 especially, Moses used imagery of the plagues of Egypt to let Israel know that if they forsook the covenant, God would similarly afflict them so that they might soften their hearts and repent or harden their hearts and have their judgment confirmed. Here's a summary of Deuteronomy 28, 60-63. You can read the whole chapter this week in your study. But it says this, He will bring upon you again all the diseases of Egypt of which you were afraid, and they shall cling to you. Every sickness also and every affliction that is not recorded in the book of this law, the Lord will bring upon you until you are destroyed. Whereas you were as numerous as the stars of heaven, you shall be left few in number because you did not obey the voice of the Lord your God. And as the Lord took delight in doing you good and multiplying you, so the Lord will take delight in bringing ruin upon you and destroying you. And you shall be plucked off the land that you are entering to take possession of it. You will find in Deuteronomy 28, as you look at it this week, language that speaks of locusts bringing disaster to crops and invading armies that seem like locusts. This was all promised to Israel if they did not walk in the covenant with God. Well, generations later, you guys know the story, during the time of the prophet Joel, these curses of judgment would come upon Israel because they were walking in blatant idolatry. Would you go there with me to the book of Joel? In the Old Testament, go to the book of Joel. If you don't know where it is, you can totally look in your table of contents. Right after Daniel is the book Hosea, and then Joel. Now here in Joel is the fulfillment of what was promised in the law and in the covenant to the people of Israel. And the prophet Joel is going to use the imagery of a recent locust swarm to describe an invading army of another nation coming to Israel to conquer and subjugate them. And I want you to notice, the reason I have you turned here is in your own Bible, I want you to notice the images he uses to evoke a need for repentance. Take a look at Joel chapter 1 verse 2. Hear this, you elders, give ear, all inhabitants of the land. Has such a thing happened in your days or in the days of your fathers? Tell your children of it and let your children tell their children and their children to another generation. In other words, it's a big deal. What the cutting locust left, the swarming locust has eaten. What the swarming locust left, the hopping locust has eaten. What the hopping locust left, the destroying locust has eaten. In other words, there is complete destruction. There is nothing left. Verse Verse 5, awake, you drunkards, and weep, and wail, all you drinkers of wine, because of the sweet wine, for it is cut off from your mouth. Why? Because the vineyards are destroyed. Verse 6, for a nation has come up against my land, powerful and beyond number. Notice, its teeth are lion's teeth, and it has the fangs of a lioness. We start to see the imagery, the same imagery that John recalls. Fast forward a little bit to chapter 2, just for the sake of time. You can read this all uh, in your study this week. Joel 2, starting in verse 1. Notice what it starts with, blow a trumpet in Zion, very similar to the plague in Revelation 9. Sound an alarm on my holy mountain. Let all the inhabitants of the land tremble, for the day of the Lord is coming. It is near, a day of darkness and gloom, a day of clouds and thick darkness. Does this sound familiar? 
Like blackness, there is spread upon the mountains a great and powerful people. Their like has never been before, nor will be again after them through the years of all generations. Fire devours before them, and behind them a flame burns. The land is like the Garden of Eden before them, but behind them a desolate wilderness. In other words, they come through, and it says nothing escapes. Their appearance is like the appearance of horses, and like war horses they run. Does this sound familiar? As with the rumbling of chariots, they leap on the tops of the mountains, like the crackling of a flame of fire devouring the stubble, like a powerful army drawn up for battle. Before the people are in anguish, all faces grow pale. Like warriors, they charge. Like soldiers, they scale the wall. The imagery Joel's using here is you picture humans, but they're acting like locusts. They march each on his own way. They do not swerve from their paths. They do not jostle one another. Each marches in his path. They burst through the weapons and are not halted. They leap upon the city. They run upon the walls. They climb up into the houses. They enter through the windows like a thief. The earth quakes before them. The heavens tremble. The sun and moon are darkened and the stars withdraw their shining. The Lord utters his voice before his army, for his camp is exceedingly great. He who executes his word is powerful, for the day of the Lord is great and very awesome. Who can endure it? You see the same images being evoked in our text to Revelation, in Revelation 9 as are being evoked here in, in Joel. John is picturing this demonic horde back in Revelation 9 as a spiritual conquering army from the bottomless pit of hell. And just as Israel was seeing this wrathful harbinger in the book of Joel, John is stating that the church needs to be aware of the spiritual warfare that will come at the hands of this horde. And to top it all off, this horde is led by a certain being, if you go back to Revelation 9, this being that is noted twice and has two names there, Abaddon or Apollyon, this being is the destroyer. And all agree he is demonic in nature, but opinions are split as to whether or not he is Satan himself or simply a demonic lieutenant, lieutenant of Satan. Now, my personal opinion is that this very similar, uh, this, these very similar thematic points that we'll find later in Revelation show Satan being released at the end of the church age to harm the church. And so I believe this is a picture that it is very well Satan himself. And so this morning, we have a current truth and a future truth that gives us caution. All of this imagery of a spiritual horde attacking us and bringing a hardness of heart to those who are not in Christ, it gives us caution. At any point in the church age, between the first and second coming of Christ, the demonic kingdom of darkness is at work to deaden our senses, blind our minds, and harden our hearts toward God and his will. And we must remind ourselves daily as Christians of the gospel of Christ to keep our hearts soft. We must daily humble ourselves. Living in the church age gives us the light of the gospel of Jesus Christ, and so we can stay safe and protected as the kingdom of darkness, led by the father of lies, rages around us. Excuse me. But there is another future truth that we will look at in more depth, especially in Revelation 20, that as the church age continues forward, there will be a time directly prior to the return of Christ, where the kingdom of darkness will be given greater freedom to torment and inflict a Christ-rejecting world. Chaos will increase, persecution will rage against the church, and the gospel and those who are in Christ need to be aware that this will happen so that we're not discouraged when it does come. Now, some of you might be asking, Hans, could that be happening right now? Only God knows. 
to put predictions or statements upon it would be a big error. But regardless of what occurs around us, no matter where we are in the chronology of the church, whether we are standing in the first century watching our brothers and sisters be martyred, or whether we are in 2022, we can stand firm knowing that Christ is the authority, even over the invading kingdom of darkness. The message we need to hear and the message that we need to take to the Christ-rejecting world around us by our very lives and by our proclamation of the gospel is the same message that the prophet Joel uses in the midst of that imagery that later is employed by John. Here's Joel chapter 2, right at the end of where we uh, just read. He says, yet even now, declares the Lord, return to me with all your heart, with fasting, with weeping, and with mourning, and rend your hearts and not your garments. Return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and merciful, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love. And he relents over disaster. Who knows whether he will not turn and relent and leave a blessing behind him, a grain offering and a drink offering for the Lord your God. As we read through and experience this destructive plague of spiritual darkness, it should incite, us in, it should incite in us an evangelistic empathy to take this message of repentance to the lost around us and to call them to repent and turn to Christ before their heart is too hardened and it is too late. We should not blindly sit by as we watch those to whom we have been called to preach be deadened to the gospel by the lies that arise from the kingdom of darkness. We should be regularly on our knees praying for them by name. We should be asking for God's help and empowering lives that point to the glory of God. We should be ready and able to speak the light of the gospel whenever we see an opening with those around us. And we should be calling people to repent and be baptized whenever we can. And if the chaos continues to increase and we find the kingdom of darkness on the move, we can rest assured that Christ alone is the one with the ultimate authority and power. And his death and resurrection has sealed his own so that we will never be destroyed nor forsaken. God has protected his people. He has softened our hearts by his own miraculous work of the cross. We are people that need to stay focused on that gospel and preach it to a world that is buying into the lies of the kingdom of darkness. Amen? Amen. Amen.